Welcome to another episode of Horrorversary. This is the podcast that celebrates horror movies that are celebrating anniversaries. We don't go for, you know, any of the the weird numbers like the 12s or the 47s or the, the 63s. No, no, we stay hard, fast, and true when it comes to those main milestones, the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, and 40s, and 50s. And that's because at basically any year that you look at in the history of film, there's always a horror movie that deserves to, you know, be put up on a pedestal or looked at or, or you know revisited in some way because it sticks in your mind and now lots of the movies we do yeah they're, they're going to be ones that you absolutely know and then you know sometimes you're going to have your slime bowl aramas it, it's just the way it works because horror i think possibly more than any other genre that deserves to be re-looked at you could have something that happens in the world and all of a sudden that movie that's 40 years old all of a sudden becomes more prescient than you could have ever possibly imagined my name's adrian torres and i'm your host here and once again we're back for another week like i said this is the start of our new season and we're going to be trying to put out between 12 to 24 episodes for this chunk and then take a little bit of a break we've got lots of great guests lined up over the next you know we'll say month or two or so we're, we're in 2020 and even though we're at the tail end who who knows what's going to happen so we're just staying positive and getting through it now this week we're covering tremors tremors is a film that i wanted to do you know give you a little peek behind the curtain wanted to do for a while and anytime i've got people you know who are guessing on the show and they're choosing their film tremors ends up being either the second or third option and because the number one option hasn't been taken yet, that's usually what I have them go with. But Tremor is a movie that you find on lots of people's lists that they want to discuss. And here we are. It's 30 years old, and it just had its seventh movie drop on uh, basically everywhere, I think, at the very end of October. October 21st, I believe, is when it came out. You can find it on Netflix. I think you can find it on, on Prime. You can find it basically anywhere. So it, it seemed like the perfect time to to really jump in and discuss Tremors because Tremors is a fun movie that seems to get looked over a lot. It, it's not something that genuinely gets brought up, up in conversation. You don't see it like posted a lot online, but it's a film that lots of people really love and it's near and dear to their heart. And I think possibly one of the reasons for that is, well, it's Tremors. So, you know, you, you got to get excited about it. It's understandable. And part of the reason that it's understandable is our guest today. Now, in a horrorversary first, which truly touched my heart, when the last episode got released, out of nowhere, I got a message from a, a friend and a uh, feller, probably better standing, who, who knows? He, he, they're a great individual when it comes to the horror community. And they reached out and they said, hey, I've, I've been listening to the show for a bit. And I noticed that Tremors hasn't been done. I don't know if you have anyone who's going to do it, but I'd, I'd like to throw my hat into the ring. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Not only was somebody reaching out wanting to be a guest, but they were bringing Tremors as their number one option to the table. So I, I couldn't say no. So please give a big horrorversary w welcome to an individual that you can find lots of their writing on Daily Grindhouse, Johnny Donaldson. How's it going, Johnny? Oh, it's going wonderfully, Adrian. How are you doing in this great year of our Lord, 2020? It's still 2020. That's that, that's the thing. You wake up each morning and it's still 2020. But you know what? I got to rewatch Tremor, so everything is not bad in the world. I 
that's a good thing. With 85 years left to go of this year, having some kernel of positive positivity like Tremors to hold on to is a great thing. In fact, this is the second time I've watched it this year alone. <laughs> Strangely <laughs> enough for, for me as well. The first time I did it was when theaters were still a thing that opened uh, in force and that everyone could go to on a daily basis. I actually hosted a 30th anniversary uh, movie party at the local uh, Alamo draft house. So that that's one of those moments that I can hold on to when people actually gathered into a theater and were like, Hey, it's a giant anniversary for this film. Oh man. I'm jealous that you were able to do that just to be in a theater to do that. But to see tremors on the big screen would have been like mind blowing, especially to younger me to be able to go see that would have been amazing. It's it was truly truly a highlight. Now, as I mentioned, people can easily find um, your work on Daily Grindhouse. Is there anything that you put out recently that you definitely want to you know gear people towards or turn their attention and say, hey, check this out that I did? Yes, I'm not just a writer for Daily Grindhouse. I occasionally dabble in making movies myself. Um, a few years ago, I wrote and dire- I co-wrote, though I'm not credited. Uh, on it because I was helping the writer. I acted in and uh, produced a horror film called Killing Brook uh, with my good friend Dave Zagorski. It's a very low budget indie horror film, kind of in the me- mode of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And it was released about 2015 by Wild Eye Releasing, but it got reissued apparently this July. Um, so they did a revamp of the D- their DVD. And you can find it like on Amazon, Best Buy, Walmart, all those big websites, or on the Wild Eye website itself. See, there you go. That, so we're, we're going to get lots of of possible insight, or just tremors love. That's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're somebody who's listening to the show for the first time, we have a very simple way that we go about the show. We we like getting into the nitty gritty, yes, but but we like keeping it simple and seeing kind of how conversations evolve. So every guest who comes onto the show is asked the exact same five questions. How they answer those questions depends on where follow-ups are and, and how the conversation goes. Um, so the very first question that we like to ask everybody, Johnny, is do you remember the first time you saw Tremors? I do. Uh, I don't remember the specific month or day, but I remember the specific year and the specific situation that I saw. I was eight years old when I saw it. It was when it first aired on ABC in 1991. I was watching it in my sister's bedroom on my parents' old beat-up rabbit ear TV. You know, when in the 80s and early 90s when it had all the fuzzy this and you had to wiggle the rabbit ears to get even a moderately good visual quality. Um, I think my mom was maybe watching some sort of country music awards or something other that, that I didn't want to see. So I begged and pleaded with my sister, who was four years older than me, to let me watch something on her TV. And I found Tremors um, and fell in love with it. This is a time when you had a basic general uh, calendar guideline for when movies would come out between theaters and TV. You'd have the a VHS release four to six months later. Then it would go to like HBO. And then it would go to like uh, B broadcast tv and i think it was the first time on broadcast tv and i just watched it didn't know much about it and absolutely fell in love with it and it became my 
first favorite movie for years. That that's that. a, that's a good way to kick it off. Now, yeah. I think it's kind of great that you mentioned catching it on TV on like yeah. broadcast television because save for a few parts of the film, they could probably easily show it without much editing. I mean, a couple you know dubbed lines here and there, but otherwise, it feels like something that would definitely be great to to catch on like you know an abc as opposed to years later when people would gravitate towards sci-fi and, and probably was a big gateway horror film for people that way oh yeah it was definitely in a gateway horror film for me it wasn't the first horror film i'd seen i'd i've always been a horror fan since my youngest days and i'd seen other things on tv but it's the one that struck the biggest chord with me at the particular moment i saw it um and I fell in love with it. And uh, apparently it was originally meant to be rated R, uh, then was re-edited to a PG-13, mostly because of language upon its initial release. So yeah, it was already redubbed over. And then, so it's easier to redub it for ABC, get like, rid of like one F word. But ever since it came out, every time it was on TV, I would watch it like to the detriment of my family who really got sick of it. But even before it reached its first 10 year anniversary, I'd probably seen it two dozen times. Jeez. So we're talking about not just a, a yearly tradition, but sometimes yeah. uh, multiple times a year. Yeah. Whenever it showed up on TV, I'd watch it like uh, USA network, TNT uh, syndication um, up here in new England. We got this channel out of New York called WPIX 11 I used to do movies on Saturdays and Sundays and a lot of times they would do horror films and that would be one of them or it'd be on like T TBS. So, and I always have to watch when it's on. Like my family would get sick of it. Dude. My sister would beg my parents to have me change the channel. I'd absolutely refuse. <laughs> well, that, that sounds like you're perfectly set for our mm -hmm. second main question, which is for the uninitiated in as few words as possible, non-spoilery, of course, Describe the basic synopsis for Tremors. Uh, this will be pretty easy because uh, it's a very straightforward B-movie, but it's a tale of two uh, Nevada handymen, Val and Earl, who discover a species of large man-eating worm living under the desert floor and must protect their town of perfection, Nevada, from this new menace. There you go. That That was perfect. Now, it might sound strange to say about Tremors because it's a film that, you know, has spawned seven sequels. Sometimes would, some people would say, you know, that's well-deserved. Some people would say that it probably should have stopped a while ago. But if you are one of the people who haven't had a chance to watch Tremors yet, pause it, this and go watch it immediately. Now, part of that's because you owe it to yourself to watch Tremors because it's fantastic. Second of all, we're going to get into spoiler territory for this film, and we don't want to ruin it if you haven't seen the film already. So we're going to take a moment here, and we're going to pause and pause the show and then come back once you're ready to, to join us as we get really knee-deep in things here. Okay, there we go. I gave you a moment to pause. It's really simple. But now all bets are off and we're going to get into it. And, and Johnny sounds like the perfect person to gush about this movie. So where we like to begin is to you. What is it about Tremors that's helped it stay relevant for the past 30 years? 
I think on a re- my most recent rewatch, which was actually last night, so I have it fresh in my memory, uh, it's the fact that it is just a well-done, unpretentious movie uh, involving characters that you like, played by actors who perfectly embody them. No one takes this in the no one in the film takes the premise, which is a little ridiculous on paper about giant man-eating sandworms living under the desert. And they don't look down to it. They don't treat it ridiculously. They take it seriously, but they don't take it too seriously. They just create a very compelling story uh, featuring characters that you really love, characters that you fall in love with, uh, witty dialogue, uh, that's not too clever by half. It just sounds natural. And great special effects. And uh, the fact that it moves like a bullet. So it's just like it immediately grabs you, drags you in, no matter how many times you watch it. And you just love to live in this world with these characters. Which is why we've had so many sequels. And those sequels brought back at least one of the characters through all of them and a couple of the characters through other ones. Like you love to live in this world with this small group of people and just revel in it and be there with them. Uh, It's funny. It's scary. It's action packed. It's just a whole lot of fun. And it's just a great movie to put on especially if you just want a good time you don't want to be necessarily battered by the films you're watching you don't want something too stupid either it falls perfectly in a nice little realm of just you know i'm going to sit back with some popcorn have some fun and just love these characters and hope for the best for them to get out alive and I think that, that that's a perfect way to to mention it is because like it's joy inducing basically when you, when you think about it a little bit. I mean it's it's goofy and jaunty like th- that's the attitude that that's through it, and it helps you, you know the movie thrive because of it. You know the comedy tone might kind of seem all over the place, but it's never really to the detriment of the film because it never fully goes into what you know you might say quote unquote stupid territory. Yeah. Yet that tones in in every pore of the film from Ernest Truce kind of goofy and energetic score. You've got Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward who just have fantastic chemistry working together. And they're they're really the heart of, you know, what makes the, the film special. You know, the majority of the side characters are are wonderful in and Bert and uh, Heather and just anyone else that you have, you know, um, Yet it also really knows when to inject a good deal of suspense and thrills. When when there's like a slight lull here and there, you still have the sense that anything could happen, you know, and there's a bit of dread. And that's because even when we venture away from the main characters, you you have a lot that's going on. You know, it's it's really smart in the way that it uses its strategic skill or kills and viscera to, to make it seem you know, bloodier than it, than it actually is. And staying within that PG 13 nature, they're able to use, you know, 500, uh, shits and, and they're, they're one fuck, but it, so it seems, you know, a, a little bit edgier to k- kids who are younger and never feels like it's downplaying too much for people who are more adults. Yeah. Uh, the, 
the comedy works because it comes from the characters. It doesn't come from the film itself. The film is never condescending to itself. It's never making fun of the threat. The threat is always real and it's always serious. And in fact, I clocked this last night watching it. You get six kills within the first 25 minutes because the film is just boom, 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 just keeps going. And it, that raises the stakes. Like it raises stakes for our characters. Like, and it prevents the comedy from ever under ever undermining the actual threat that the tremors that the graboids as they're called in the film actually represent. Um, and that's what works. And that's like my favorite kind of horror comedy is not where it's wacky and just like everything is a goof. It's where the humor is character based. Um, but the threat is still real. Things like this, Shaun of the Dead, American Werewolf in London, you feel like you can still be scared and you can still feel scared for the characters, even after you watch the movie and you know it's tricks, but you can still laugh and have that relief without anything ever being undermined. So, do, do you with, feel that maybe but not just the, the the comedy working in the film but having the comedy in general makes uh those stakes when they do hit uh that much heavier yes because it makes you like the characters you don't want to see any of these characters die you love these characters so when one of them does die uh it hurts you don't want to see them you want to see them all get out alive and, you know, we already didn't spoiler alert, so it's not a spoiler to say that most of them do get out alive at the end, but a few of them don't. And because we've set up the threat with some of the subsidiary characters that we see in the beginning, and then we see a couple deaths more peppered out throughout the film, there is a sense that any of these characters could get it. So if you're watching it for the first time with scenes like when the worm's uh, Graboids burst into Heather and Bert's rec room. Mm -hmm. You don't know if they're going to survive or not, but you already established that you like these characters, despite what they are, uh, which is survivalists. But you've grown to like them because of the charisma of the actors, the writing of the characters. So when the houses are being shaken, when characters are being threatened, when you know, Melvin, who's always playing pranks, uh, screams for that last time and they run out to kick his ass and he's on the lamppost. You don't know if he's been got or not. Yeah. Like, and that's does make the stakes higher because the comedy isn't undermining the threat. Like I said, it's reinforcing the characters and making you love the characters even more. And and I think that's that's a thing that gets uh, overlooked a lot in, in horror. I mean, we were just talking about this uh, in the last episode, which was focusing on prom night and, and how the characters um, are a lot more important that you, you do have lots of the disposable horror where the people are knocked off because, you know, they're, they're made to be annoying and you don't care. And even you have somebody like Melvin, who is, you know, very much annoying. You still care about their, about their well-being and you have somebody like Bert who of course comes back in uh each and every single subsequent mm. film that it's I, I think it's it's part of what makes this special is that e even the side characters you get to know a little bit about them whether it's Nestor whether it's um oh god uh Victor who's running you know the um the, the, oh, the store 
you know, you, you get to know all the characters, e- even if they might seem like they, they kind of have an archetypal fit. Mm-hmm. You know a little bit about their history and, and who they are in this really small town. Yeah, and the movie's smart about using shorthand to illustrate these characters. We we know who all these people are almost immediately just by the way they're dressed, the way they interact with each other. We don't need to like stop the movie and have like a big monologue for each character. We know who these characters are because the movie has developed who these characters are even immediately. Like the writers thought about who each person is. They didn't just plug in a character to be eaten. Yeah. And you can just contrast with this Tremors with some of the sequels and the franchise where Bert is there, but he's surrounded by characters who you don't care about, who get, who are just there to provide a body count while Bert runs around making jokes and trying to fight the graboids. And I know that it's, it's kind of in, we're, we're in, in uh, 2020 now. So, you know, we, we look at things through, a different lens and we can be like, Oh, there's an oversight because this, this film doesn't necessarily, you know, have, have a black character. But at the same time for as small as the cast is, it's surprisingly diverse, you know, with the number of, of women that you have in it, with the fact that, you know, you've got both a Mexican character and an Asian character, you know, who are, are major parts of the film that as small as it is, they're, they're rounding it out uh, or they're rounding it out. So it's not just, you know, you have the white characters and stuff like that. But then even something that I've noticed in the last couple of rewatches is the way it's written to develop some of the characters like Rhonda, when you, she is an exposition machine at first, mm. but they have it be natural with the fact that she's a scientist. And so mm. the way she's laying it out, she's telling you from the scientific standpoint while also giving you all the pertinent information you need to know. So it feels more organic to the story. Yeah. And Rhonda's also kind of uh, positioned as a love interest for Val. Um, so she's hitting like two different stereotypes in films, like the female lead as love interest and the exposition machine, but the film does it naturally and still makes her feel like a real person. Like when Val and Earl run into her, uh, this after they kill the first graboid unintentionally, she does all this scientific exposition, but they don't fight her. They don't argue with her. They don't act like macho men. They, take her out of word. They're like, okay, you got it. We're, we'll listen to you. Like, and that shows like that the, the character is respected and therefore we can respect the character and the character is not a stereotype. She's a real human being. And these are real human beings who are like, Oh, well, she's the smart one. She's a college kid. Well, of course we'll listen to her. We're just kind of two uh, handymen just kind of running around in our denim jeans, looking for whatever work we can get we don't know about this. So she's a smart one. Let's follow her. And that makes everything feel realer and helps buy into more. And also makes the relationship that develops between Val and Rhonda feel more realistic. Like, cause Val is kind of like presented as this guy who loves like playboy model types. <laughs> and she's not that, but you feel you see the chemistry growing between them. You see his concern and care growing for her. And like, you know, he's not like as shallow as he pretends he is. He's a good guy. They're both good guys. And you, it feels natural in a way that some films 
don't manage to do. Mm-hmm. And they also give her a lot of stuff to do herself to be a hero in the film. She's not just a love bunch. She's one of a triumvirate of heroes. More, actually, than a triumvirate. There's lots of heroes in this film, but she's the one who, like, saves Val with the uh, when he's trying to get the caterpillar. She's the one who figures out the pole vaulting technique, even as Val and Earl are idiotically arguing amongst themselves. Uh, she does a lot to help, and just as Miguel does, he's the one who comes up with the idea to use the scooter to distract the uh, um, um, the graboids. Uh, so Val can get to the caterpillar. Like, so they give little bits to all these characters to let them be heroes and to let them shine, even as they're subsidiary characters. And it, and it's great how they set up Rhonda too, so that you can have the laugh later on when when uh, Stumpy's trying to to feel the side of the building, and Val looks at her and he goes, "What do you think he's trying to do?" And she goes, "Why are you asking me?" And it's just that he he's been so used at that point to being like, "Oh, she's got the answers," that he instinctually is like, "Oh, she's going to know what's going on right now." Yeah, no, it's hilarious because it kind of subverts the kind of expert trope uh, where they know the know it all, where they know everything and they have the answers. She's like, yeah, I'm smart, but I've never encountered this before. It's just like earlier in the scene where she's describing it and she's like, yeah, this is something that's unprecedented. And Nestor's like, yeah, but has it been seen before? (laughs) And you could look at her like, oh, my God, face when he says that it's it's a great like use of that kind of like character that you see in these monster movies the third big question uh that we or i guess the 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 next big question that we like to to tackle is is there a signature scene or moment from the film that stays with you see i've been thinking about this ever since i broached this to you i'm trying to figure out what i think the signature scene in this movie is because there are a lot of good scenes that Mm -hmm. could be the signature scene there is the this, the when the first graboid um, lifts its head out of the dirt, showing its full self to Val and Earl. There's the Val trying to run for the caterpillar, which shows the threat of the thing. There's the car being dragged under the dirt, <laughs> which shows how strong the graboids are and how much of a threat they are they can't just hide in a car away from them they can drag your damn station wagon down under the dirt but i think if i was going to pick one signature scene that shows the tone of the movie the fun of the movie the threat of the character Mm -hmm. and just the kind of shorthand to show you how the characters are it's the rec room invasion of uh when the graboid busts through the wall into burt and heather's rec room yep uh you see the size of the graboid. You see how much of a threat it is to them because it busts through this concrete barrier. And these are survivalists. They built their home to last nuclear Armageddon, basically. And this thing just doesn't care about their plans. It busts through. It's nature in full force, just coming to get them. It nearly gets burnt. They unload half their firepower at it. Like they are basically prototypical NRA nuts, 
with a wall full of guns. And half those guns are unloaded in this thing before it finally dies. They even unload a freaking flare gun into its mouth. Um, but it just shows the shorthand, like the characters, like the way they interact over the CB radio with uh, Val and Earl, the way they go about their lives, Heather doing whatever she is doing with their bullets and that random machine, which I have no idea what that is, but something to do with their guns, just their ease with each other. Uh, Heather going, Bert, maybe we should listen to them. And then them kind of being like, when Val's like, they're under the ground, they're under the ground. Bert has this like look of realization in his head. Like he doesn't question them. He's not like arguing against them. He's not in like most movies, a character like that would be the human antagonist. Almost. He would argue with the heroes. He would think he's a know-it-all. He would be a macho bastard trying to like usurp authority or undermine authority or something. He's not, he's just a guy who lives this lifestyle who believes the threat, who understands the threat and takes into his um, hand, takes into his hands when the threat comes to his home and they turn up, they show them as more heroes in this community. Uh, They show the comedy of the situation, but they also show the serious threat. And I think if you were to encapsulate tremors into one scene, it would be that scene perfectly because it's action, laughs, drama, horror. It's a really good scene. I think that's the centerpiece film scene of the film yeah it's it's a really good scene it, it, it definitely hits all those points you know and, and starts to make a uh a, a hero out of bert you know that of course yeah. the the later series really uh tackles yeah. onto but makes yeah. him uh human because of course he, yeah. he's got his great line yeah. um at the very end where he's you know pointing at it and he's going broke into the wrong goddamn rec room didn't you <laughs> yep uh and but then directly after he says that he collapses back a little bit, you know, and, and is sighing and, and Heather comes over to him and, and he hugs her. So it's it's not just the super macho-ness and everything, you know, he it makes it feel a, a little bit more more real for him because he has to take that moment. Uh, the moment that always sticks out for me is, you know, also punctuated by by humor, but is the the first time that uh, Val and Earl are running away from uh the graboid uh that's that's menacing them and they're they're running as fast as they can and you see all the posts that of course they were putting up early in the film are getting knocked back and back and back because you know so you can see the the trajectory of the uh, of the graboid and you know it's 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 menacing and then they get Mm -hmm. to the the ditch area and they you know jump over it and it slams through Mm -hmm. and of course you you have kevin bacon who just goes Fuck you! And it's 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 so cathartic because you you have that tension that's building and building and building, and they he he has the yeah we got you even though it was just you know happenstance and and sheer luck that happens but you know he says that and then they cut back to the graboid and you you fully see its tendrils sticking out and um you have all the the goop and everything and and Rond is there and. And then they end up digging it out and you see how long it is. And I think it's a reminder of how effective practical effects are, because what not only just seeing the thing afterwards, but then when, you know, they have the giant 
uh, graboid there that they've uncovered, and you can see how big it is. You can see the little things that it's using to to push itself through the ground. So you have a sense of how big this thing in, is and how it works. That just seeing it there gets stuck in your mind, and and you know, we the films as they go along are are entertaining to a degree, but when they become more uh, heavily just CGI, you lose some of that power. And I think that's what's great about going back to the first one is you, you get to see so much of it and the practicality and the fact that it's physically there uh, makes it a lot more menacing and dangerous. Yeah, it gives it a heft. It gives it a real presence in the film that so the sequels don't really have. I To a degree, the second one with the Shriekers, because yeah. they don't use as much CGI, and they're still practical then, but from like the third one on, there's a lot more of that plasticine, shiny CGI quality. And the films also the films are turning more into cartoons. Like Bert is becoming more of a cartoon. He's so well played by Michael Gross, but the way he's written is more cartoonish than the one we see in the first film. Yeah. Um but with that heft and that body you see like you get a real sense of threat like you believe these creatures could be real like and when i was a little kid i kind of did i'd kind of like tiptoe around outside a little quietly sometimes but because the film made a good um uh play of showing you that these Creatures are real, and they're real threats that, you know, um, they're fast, they're strong. We've already seen them sucked on the car, like I said earlier in the podcast. Uh, you see how their um, little spines work. We get a few t- shots in the film, which, you know, are a little like early, early CGI or early, early um, kind of network or something, where you see them from their point of view going through the dirt but it shows how fast they are. Like whether it's them, their point of view, or you see that big hump going through the desert or like when they're running through the, um, after they free Rhonda from the barbed wire and they're running back into the, uh, uh, general store and you see the planks of the entryway going just up as the, uh, creature burrows underneath it, which is a shot I've always loved seeing in movies ever since, <laughs> watching Tremors, like you see it in Deep Rising and stuff, and it's a shot I always love when the character heroes are running away from a threat and it's pushing the floor up from underneath them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you get this real sense that these are things that are real. And the way the characters react to them are also help with that sense, like that, fuck you! That's earned, and it shows you the kind of characters that Val or all you see them from the beginning, the way they interact, they're in a chemistry with each, each other, where you can tell they're at least best friends. And that FU is the most earned FU in that film. Like, they, like I said, we're going to make an R rated film, and they had to change a lot of swear words like uh-huh. when he says mother humper they were supposed to say motherfucker they just had it dubbed over so they could get a pg-13 release which i think in this case is a smart decision i think this plays better as a pg-13 movie but with pg-13 films you get one f word to be a pg-13 yeah. two you get an r so you have to use it well 
And that FU is the most perfectly situated that it could be. Any of the other uses wouldn't have been as effective. They use that perfectly. Because, like you said, it is cathartic. You see these men that you like from the beginning. Like, you immediately get on Down Earl's side from the opening frames when they're arguing about who made breakfast. They're doing the uh, um, rock, paper, scissors mm-hmm. bit, which they use as a gag throughout the film. It shows you just how long they've been in a relationship together, uh, whether it's simply a work relationship, a friend relationship, or something else. You don't know. We don't want to judge in 2020. <laughs> um, no, it, it, it works. And, and what's interesting, uh, I think, about it is that it feels like for for as fun as the as the script is i feel like a lot of what makes this work isn't just the casting but then is the directing as well um because we haven't mentioned him yet but uh ron underwood is who directs the movie who hadn't really done much before this you know some some small things here and there and this kind of starts um a run of films un- un- until 2002 when you know, kind of face plants with uh, Pluto Nash, but everybody face plants with Pluto Nash, so that's not anyone's one set fault. But he makes this, and then he does City Slickers, and then he does Heart and Souls, and those three movies are movies that are really accessible to a a wide audience, even though they're they're more geared towards adults, but they're all uh, big ensemble pieces you know that are working with you know several people working in 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 tandem that you're spending lots of time with um when you're going on these adventures and he just has a a real knack for for knowing what works well when you're working with a a group of people you know coming up against uh insurmountable odds and i think that's what really helps carry this movie is that he he understands the 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 weight and how to balance it yeah he's a good like character director like he understands how characters play off of each other and it's sad he didn't get to do too much more after this other than like city slickers and stuff like he's done a lot of tv uh he did the mighty joe young Mm -hmm. which is another character driven kind of like big monster movie except the monster is cuddly uh (laughs) But he has this real understanding of the rhythms of how characters interact with each other. He really knows how to let them have the space to breathe before putting them in, whether it's a horrific situation as in Tremors or a comedic situation as in City Slickers. He has a sense of how it means to be an actual human being in a film rather than just an stereotype or cliche and how to have these characters like live with each other and react and um just be kind of like reasonable beings like he's a great character director which might explain why he's done a lot of tv in a since pluto nash because those are realms where you can let characters breathe and you know exist yeah. And I mean, work for hire isn't really bad. I think one of the interesting trends uh, that, that you see with lots of these movies that, that have been covered on the show, um, of course, you know, if it's a, a John Carpenter movie, if it's a Wes Craven movie, well, 
if it's a really big workhorse directors that everybody knows who've been able to to be lucky enough to just do theatrical film after theatrical film that lots of these other guys are are journeymen who are working on tv for you know the the better part of their career that they have that film that's really good maybe a couple after it but once it hits like 2000 on you see them kind of stuck working in, in television and it's kind of a shame and i don't know if it's because lots of them had a big film that was in horror that people weren't sure if they could do other elements, but you see lots of them transition into, into TV later on. Yeah. Uh, Tremors was run, was Ron Underwood's first film before that. He started in the realm of, uh, I kid you not afternoon specials that <laughs> after school specials that you would watch as a child, like that warned you about the dangers of drug use and running with scissors and all that stuff. And I think doing that actually helped his understanding of how to direct Tremors because um, you have to make characters like that relatable in order to reach the target audience, which is generally youths who are watching after school specials in order to warn them about whatever the after school special is trying to uh, warn them about whether it's like, don't take candy from strangers or stuff like that or so I think honing his ability in that realm really actually kind of weirdly translated into his ability to direct something Tremors and then to go on to that workmanlike career of working in TV. Like he knows how to do things fast and quick, which also helps with the pacing of Tremors. He knows how to get what he wants quickly. Like I think, and he knows how to build like, people you can relate to and i think all that goes into what helps make tremors work as a film now the next big question uh that we ask it's going to be a little bit difficult this time so i'll I'll put the caveat um on there to try to think of a a film uh that's not the tremor series i mean we can easily talk about you know the later the later entries if we choose to but when asking this question think outside that box um and that's that's because we always like to ask if there's a more modern uh film or film you know within the last handful of years that feels reminiscent of of tremors you know what what elements of that film works uh better than tremors and what feels like it works less now you can easily do that with the rest of the tremor series but Outside of that, can you think of something that feels uh, like the first Tremors movie? Oh, yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of, like, comedic monster movies that have come out in the wake of Tremors that definitely feel uh, just like Tremors. It's not the most recent, but Deep Rising from 1998 is definitely a spawn of Tremors mm-hmm. type film. You have the wormy creatures, the... Uh, the mix of characters um, that you love uh, that are well-written. You got the paciness, you got like the working class hero as for recent years. Uh, I'm not sure there's anything in the past dozen past five or so years. I'd say is a straight up tremors spawn, but things like snakes on a plane. I'd also say slither. I think a, a lot of those kind of like, horror comedies where you're working with like a creature threatening a cast of characters and a kind of like fun manner. Um, 
would be apropos, like Slither definitely, uh, with, uh, you know, Michael Rooks, Rooker's character and Greg Henry's like mayor and Nathan Fillion and stuff. I think that's a good, um, film that is very comparable to Slither in terms of tone, pacing, thematics, what it's about. Um, trying to think of any big monster movies from the past few years. Um, maybe it's a little too big of a scale, but Rampage with um, The Rock has that kind of fun tone. Um, and also the big monsters fighting. Crawl to a lesser degree, though it's more serious and less comedic. Oh. Um, a Piranha 3D, though it's a lot gorier and more R-rated. Um, that I think would be a good choice to uh, as a, like a spawn of Tremors type thing. So yeah, it, those kind of like horror comedies where you tend to like the characters uh, and they put them in a threat with like monsters, but you have them kind of joking about it, but not undermining the threat of what's going on. Uh, Feast as well. Feast from 2006 would also be one I'd think of as kind of being similar to Tremors. I, what, what, what's interesting about all these that, that you're mentioning goes back to what we talked about earlier and with the way the tone of this one comes out. Cause especially with mentioning something like um, Piranha um, or any other type of movies that you have out there. I, uh, I don't want to get yelled at by certain people who like the movie, but something like Zombievers comes to, uh, to mind that what those movies have differently than this one is that the tone never goes fully into uh, to being dumb or, or, or stupid yeah. in, in, in the humor. And I think that's, that's one of the, the big keys that I think, maybe that's why we haven't seen as many. And that's why it's a little bit difficult because you have lots of, of films now that when they want to do the ridiculous uh, B level uh, creature feature, they go too far into um, the, the, the stupid or dumb level of humor that almost borders on, on spoof. And that's not bad. Plenty of those are, are, are great. It just doesn't, um, uh, on the scale, it doesn't equal out with the way that that Tremors has the ridiculousness without it going into to being fully dumb. Yeah, and I think that's what's my pro- what is my problem with a lot of horror comedies from the uh, the current era is they do go overboard into the wackiness, into the uh, spoofiness, the silliness of the material. They don't take the threat seriously. They don't let the humor come organically out of the characters. They, it's very self-conscious humor. It's very, I want to be a cult film type humor. It's pre-made midnight movie type of humor. And that needs to be earned. It needs to flow naturally from the process of making a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why I kind of like have a hard time thinking something that's exactly like Tremors that is currently within like the past five years. Why my first go-to is a film that's in itself 22 years old, which is Deep Rising, because that's a film that is very much Tremors in the Water. Um, But a lot of the films made nowadays, uh, in terms of creature features, are either like these big budget things, or they take themselves 
not seriously enough. So you are just stereotype characters in wacky situations that might be entertaining for like the 90 minutes you're watching it, but don't stick to the ribs in the way that something like Tremors does because you don't remember the characters. You don't remember the situations. It's just like it's in and out in one year. It's cinematic fast food. I think that gets to, to a bigger uh, question that, that I don't think there's, unless you were to talk to like a studio head or somebody who's been, you know, directly behind the camera for it, that you'd be able to get a, a concrete uh, enough answer. That's not mostly speculation, but it, that does bring up the question of, do you think that those movies are that, that are being made, you know, now at this period are having to, go into that because of either uh, studio pressure um, because of some worry that the film's not going to be taken uh, seriously enough on uh, its own merits or because it's being made by people who want that instant attention that they know that if they, if they have moments that are bigger and broad and potentially, you know, on, on the dumb level can connect with the audience. And at the same time, it feels like we almost need um, another phrase or terminology to put in here because I don't, I feel like I'm being insulting towards those movies and sometimes the movies deserve it, but the large majority of the time they, they don't by having to say it's dumb, but it's, it's like you mentioned, it's self-referential and maybe it's irreverent, but it, it, it's just on that side of spoofiness where saying wacky is weird. Saying dumb almost feels weird, even though, when you mention it, people's brains go, aha, I get it. I understand what you're referring to. Um, but it doesn't always lessen the the overall film. It just feels like that it's either, you know, a script note that that, you know, the studio saying, hey, we need this to be a little bit funnier or there's a reliance on the people who are making the film that they feel mm-hmm. that they they have to do that to be uh, accepted in the moment as opposed to. Uh, you know, the natural uh, cult way of being. I think irreverent is a good word for it. I think irreverent is a better word than wacky or dumb. Like, and as for whether or not they're trying to do it because of studio notes or uh, because they want to, it depends, I think, on each situation. I mean, I like some of these films. Like, I do like Zombievers. Like, I have a lot of fun with Zombievers. I also hate a lot of these films. I'm not going to name any of the ones I do. Exactly. But, that, that, that's, uh, that, that's why there's probably a, like 175 examples that we didn't mention, which is for good reason. What we uh, the ones that we mentioned are, are ones that that are close there, but they're still slightly of a different beat. If if any of these movies are movies we didn't like, I don't think we'd bring them up, like you said. Yeah, all the movies I mentioned are ones I like, like and some of them get much more closer to tremors than uh, others like slither. I think is a lot more does take its threat seriously and isn't super irreverent, but I do think there is a uh, tendency amongst some filmmakers when they're going the horror comedy route to want to push the comedy and push the outrageousness of the comedy. And I think there might be an element of wanting instant attention and wanting that like, be the buzz film of the whatever film festival they're going to premiere at or something like that, because horror comedies aren't successful at the box office there. It's not big major studios who are making notes about this stuff. Uh, They don't succeed. Like, uh, so 
especially monster-oriented ones. Mm-hmm. So when the mainstream audience goes to see the horror films, they want something straightforward. So if they do see a monster film, they want a serious monster film. So it's mostly the hardcore horror fans who are watching these things and these things coming to VOD and uh, at home media and streaming and stuff. So there are probably some notes from some like producers or something like, let's make it more like this film that's successful or like in the wake of like the grindhouse film movement of the about decade and a half ago after well grindhouse we had all these fake exploitation films there's an element where people grew up with these films and want to make them these films but uh they look at the superficial quality of these films and don't really pay attention to the uh underbelly Mm -hmm. of these films what makes these films tick like the characters or stuff they just see what you know, works on a midnight movie sense. And again, these are the bad versions of these films I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm not talking about the films that we do like, and there are filmmakers who do successfully uh, manage this kind of tonal balance, even if they do go more on the comedy side than the horror side or vice versa. There are filmmakers who make good fun films that we enjoy and they deserve to have their day in the sun. But I do think of there's a lot of overtly irreverent films that don't pay attention to um, what is what makes a film work, which is the characters and the uh, writing and stuff, and they just go for like the obvious gore gags or the mm-hmm. <laughs> obvious gore gags or. Um, Stuff like that. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little distracted right now because my cat just jumped up on the desk and is now batting at my nose for attention. <laughs> well, well, that's that's understandable. I think I think um, there's every podcast that basically gets to to that point. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll go quick and wrapping it up then, so the cat can have uh, the attention that it deserves. Um, you rewatch this movie often, but you rewatched it again for the second time this year uh do you do you feel that it's definitely still worthy of of the reverence and be putting up uh, on the pedestal that that people are putting it on 30 years later or do you feel that maybe some of the shine is slowly you know uh dimming away from the film no i think it's an outright classic i definitely think it's deserving its reverence i think it plays even better as an adult than i what within when i was a kid um I think that it very much deserves everything that uh, I think it very much deserves all the love and attention it gets. Um, There's a reason why it has a long lasting franchise where people are praising Tremor seven on Twitter. Uh, Tremor seven is actually the, probably the best sequel in a while, but there's a lot of love for this franchise and it's well-deserved love because it holds up beautifully on almost every level like so yes it does deserve everything the score is great the dusty desert cinematography is great even on the crappy old dvd that i own the characters you love the acting is wonderful like fred ward is great kevin bacon is great michael gross reba mcintyre they're all they all understand their characters the writing is terrific like yes it holds up and seeing it twice in one year as an adult, it definitely holds up 
Okay. Now I, I, I took a moment to, to be quiet there just to, um, to get ready and see if I should ask you, uh, this question do you want to go for for a little piece of of trivia just to to see if we can fully suss out you know how how much of a fan you are of of tremors and the tremor series in general yeah sure well, well. Okay. i don't i don't i i'm trying i'm trying to see to get the full answer i know at least uh, uh three of them but um can you name more than one of the the team hats that um that Bert wears over the, the many Tremors films. Absolutely not. I don't pay attention to what the hats are. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I did so bad on um, the Friday, the 13th trivia that uh final exam was doing uh, when they did that all Friday, the 13th episode uh, tournament. Yeah. I didn't get, I got like hundred thirtieth place because they were asking notes about the most obscure stuff. I I don't pay attention to the little things like that. I, 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 <laughs> I, no, it's 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 okay. I mean the 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 main one that that people would look for is of course in the in the first movie he wears um, an Atlanta Falcons uh, yeah. hat, and I know it changes a couple times over the year. And the most recent one was a Cubs hat. Because uh, it's changed, I want to say like two to three times over the year. I was just trying to see if if you were able to name um, any of them. I thought you were going to ask me to name the like subtitles of the movies. Jeez. No, uh, no. I mean that that would be a, well. I mean we could we could try for the second one is aftershocks. Yep. Do you know the third one? Third I know. one is back to perfection or something like that. Yes, back to perfection. Uh, third one is or sorry fourth one is the prequel one that's the yep. old west that one i don't i don't know i don't know if it has a subtitle i'm not sure fifth one is bloodlines yeah and fifth, then six cold, is a cold day in hell yep and then shrieker island yep so tremors four is what we are looking for i i is it the beginning? Oh, I think so. It yeah, because be... it's because it's a Tremors prequel starring no, it's... the legend begins. Okay, I just pulled it up. The legend begins. begins. Uh... It's close. That was the that was the only one we couldn't get. So it's in the same universe as the Hercules TV show. Sure, we'll 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 say that it's you know years later and also technically not mythological, but <laughs> that works now. Because this has been uh, a, again, it's cliche, but a crazy year. We didn't get to see lots of the movies we wanted to see in theaters, but VOD has blown up. Um, so the question that I always like asking everybody at the end is: Do you have three suggestions of films that you think people should should check out online? It doesn't; they don't have to all be new. There could be a new one peppered in there, but just for many people who are still you know, staying at home, aren't able to go places uh, and stuff. Just three movies that you think they should give a chance to. Well, the first one I say would be keeping it still in the kind of tremors mold of, you know, B monster movie from the nineties. I hope it's still there. I didn't actually bother to double check, but back in April on Tubi was the 1990 film bats. 
uh, and it's the R-rated, it's the R-rated cut um, with extra gore. Uh, Bats stars Lou Diamond Phillips and Dina Meyer. Is a film that was a box office flop in 1999. Is a film I actually hated when I f- <laughs> saw it back on when I was a teenager, and then decided to revisit because I was actually revisiting a lot of horror films from my teenage years during the early days of COVID. And I found I liked it a lot more. In fact, I enjoyed it a lot more than I did. And it's that kind of, again, that kind of fun B-movie vibe. It's about basically killer thing. uh, You know, those giant bats, the fanged foxes or whatever they're called, the really large ones, they're attacking a Southwestern community and it's up to Sheriff Lou Diamond Phillips and bat scientist Dina Meyer and fellow bat scientist Leon to fight them. And it's very similar to Tremors in that there's no real human antagonist. Even the scientists who kind of like genetically modified them and is obsessed with them is not a super bad guy. Like the characters you like. Um, the creature effects are pretty cool. My one detriment to it is like during the bat attack scenes there's a lot of shaky cam being used which is kind of distracting but that is an enjoyable one that i liked a lot so that's one i'd recommend if it's on was on tubi as of april it's still on there it's still still on on there there. it's so yes then bats bats if you want something (laughs) similar to tremors um beyond that i've been watching so much that i'm trying to actually remember what i Saw and didn't see. Um, well, uh, I recently watched The Dark and the Wicked from Brian Bertino. Uh, I think it's a very understated and creepy film. Um, I'm still kind of chewing it over in my head. That's one of the last recent things I saw on streaming. It's uh, available to rent on VOD, so you, you do have to pay for it but it's like $7, but it is a very dark, dark film. And I do love me a good dark film. So if you like something that's just as bleak and brutal as like a hereditary, that would be a good choice. And it's got Xander Berkeley in it. It does got Xander Berkeley in it. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a small part, but if you're listening to, to this show, there's a good chance you know who Xander Berkeley is and that from from the director of uh, the first Strangers film and having a, a bit fart for uh, Xander Berkeley, you know, could could get you over the edge. Yes, definitely. And it's a wonderfully pr- played creepy part, too. Um, so that one is one I'd recommend. And... Uh, I've been... <laughs> Actually, I did rewatch the new grudge. I hated it back in January, but I rewatched it again not too long ago. It's actually not that bad. There is a bleakness there and a seriousness to the way it's done that is just a little undermined by some bad jump scares and like bad conception of the spirits in the film. But it's actually not that bad of a film. However, that's not my other recommendation. My other recommendation is going to be another 2B film. Okay. It's a weird one. It's for the arty fans in the crowd. It's called Last House on Massacre Street. Okay. It's from 1973. It's also known as The Bride. 
and The House That Cried Murder. It is written by the same guy who directed Blood Rage, the Thanksgiving slasher film with the twins. John Grismer, he directed Blood Rage in a film called Scalpel, and then he wrote this one. This is the first script he wrote. And it's about a rich, uh, rich woman who wants to marry one of her father's employees. The employee wants to marry her to get at her money, but he's kind of a lech. He sleeps. He's still sleeping with an ex-girlfriend of his. Uh, and in fact, on their wedding day, he sleeps with the ex-girlfriend and gets caught by the wife who kind of like stabs them, not fatally, but like attacks them. And then she goes into like hiding and like disappears. And like two weeks later, he's taken up with back with this like woman he's been sleeping with. And they start getting phone calls from her (laughs) and like taunting phone calls. And they're, I don't want to spoil it, but it's, very strange, surreal, not for all audiences kind of film, but I kind of really loved it. It's a very much Southern Gothic soap opera with a hint of like proto David Lynch quality to, to it. Um, and the way it's shot. And then, then it goes to some exceptionally weird places in this last 15 minutes. Um, that's you, all I'll you, say. You've got me sold for, yeah. from the, from the guy who, who who did who directed Blood Rage yeah. and wrote uh, Scalpel and it's eighty five minutes long yeah. and yeah. I quickly looked on on Letterbox and saw that several people I know had had watched it and said that uh, it's got one of the strangest endings they've they've ever seen so I'm like okay and it's yeah. on Tubi so it's free yep exactly and for that alone whether you like it or not you'll see the <laughs> strangest ending to that kind of film you'll ever see. And I, while I normally try to chime in and throw a couple films out there, all I'm going to say is one that, that Johnny just uh, uh, hinted at with the connection to the last film. This episode's going to be dropping about a week before uh, Thanksgiving, which I know for people who are outside of the U S doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter, but you can still watch the movie anyways. But for, for anyone else, um, who's looking for something to watch around Thanksgiving because there's not a ton of Thanksgiving films out there. Uh, check out blood rage. Um, I, I can do a quick check to see where it's streaming, but if you've never seen or witnessed blood rage before, it's something that you, you need in your life. There's plenty of times that people are like, Oh, you, you have to see this movie because it's it's so good, it's bad, or or whatever reason. But Blood Rage is one of those movies that people tell you to to see it. You might kind of be apprehensive at first and like, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure if I want to, you know, give that a watch or anything. No, Blood Rage has the goods. the The special effects are great and over the top. The kills are weird. The acting is strange. The plot points are sometimes nonsensical. It's endlessly quotable. It's also on Tubi and it's on um, Prime. So th- there's really no reason not to watch it. But it's it's a Thanksgiving slasher horror film that is exceptionally weird and wonderful, I would say. But have you have you seen it, Johnny, I'm guessing? Oh, it's a Thanksgiving tradition for me. I it's love not, it. That's not cranberry sauce. It's not cranberry sauce. 
Um, it's it's one of the things thinking about it now that that you mentioned it is is it means that I'm going to be sad in uh, about a week uh, with theaters being closed down and everything. It was here in in Kansas City. I was the the Terror Tuesday host for the local uh, Alamo Draft House, and the creative manager and I yeah. would would bend over backwards when it came to you know holidays to to try to find something new and weird and different. But for the past three um, Thanksgivings, we'd all on that Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we would always show uh, Blood Rage, um, and that's because the first time we just wanted to show it because we thought it would be fun. And the audience went crazy, and each subsequent year, in about October, people would would ask and would be like, "Hey, are you guys going to show Blood Rage again?" So we were like, "Yeah, we 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 got to show it," and we ended up uh, having it be in. I think each time, like the first time we had it was in in a, a smaller theater, just because that's how it worked out. But so technically, each subsequent year uh, we showed it, it would be in a larger theater each time. And it would end up selling out each time. It didn't matter how many seats you added. We ended up selling out just because people were like, we have to see this on the big screen. That sounds wonderful. I wish I could attend a showing like that. That would have been amazing to see that with an audience. Yeah. So so now I'm going to be a little sad that this year's not not going to happen. But I'm still going to watch the movie. And I think that everybody else should. Uh, where can people find you online, Johnny? Uh, they can find me online on Twitter at at Johnny Donaldson. Very easy to remember. It, it's my name. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd, same. I'm not very good at coming up with uh, fake names for myself. <laughs> um, I barely use my letterbox, but I'm there. I do use my Twitter a lot, so you can find me there. I'm usually making dumb jokes or spouting off on political issues and occasionally talking about horror films. And you can read my stuff at Daily Grindhouse, as we said earlier in the episode. There you go, perfectly. Now, do you have any? Because I'm I'm bad, and I'll I'll check out Daily Grindhouse, you know, like once mm-hmm. a month, just because too many other things going on. Do Do you have any columns or or anything over there that you'd want to direct people to? Um, you know, to definitely check out that you've done recently. I don't have any columns. I do a lot of reviews and stuff like that. Twenty twenty has been a bad year for me. I, writing has kind of gone away from me. I haven't written much since the spring That's um, the majority of people so you're okay <laughs> yeah i i did review unhinged that was the last thing i wrote i'm currently working on something to send to them right now actually before this episode started but i did write a very personal 20th anniversary column on final destination for them back in march that i am very proud of um and relating Final Destination and its conception of death to my own um, issues with suicidal ideation growing up. So I'm very proud of that one. So if they want to find that one, they can. Um, And once I get my creative drive back, I'm probably going to start writing more and stuff like that. Well, that that sounds fantastic. You can find me on Twitter at Yo Adrian Torres. The handle for the show is at Horrorversary. It's very simple. And like I said, we're going to try to make sure to to keep these episodes coming out at, at a steady pace so that we can get at least 12 to 24 episodes in 
um, in this grouping for this season. Well, thank you so much, Johnny, for, for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Adrian. And can I mention one last thing before we sure. go? Yeah. I oh, just remembered it, that Tremors is actually coming out in a deluxe Blu-ray from Arrow in December. So this is actually perfectly timed. Uh, so if people want to see Tremors, you have no excuse now. There's going to be a beautiful <laughs> deluxe version. So Arrow always goes out of their way. Yeah. So, well, thank you for having me, Adrian. This is a wonderful time. Absolutely. Now, until next time, everybody, especially with this year, especially because we're getting towards, you know, the, the cold and, and the holidays and the doldrums of the end of the year, be nice to each other.